This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen from Ringler's Northeast Operations. I want to welcome you again to this edition of Ringler Radio. And today we're coming to you from the Ringler Associates annual meeting in sunny Newport Beach, California, which uh, makes me feel awfully good, seeing that I come from Boston and it was 10 degrees below. We've got another important topic to discuss on Ringler Radio today, and we're going to be hosting a two-part series. Uh, The title of the uh, two-part series is interesting. It's How Economics Outside of a Courtroom Differs from Economics Inside a Courtroom. And I'm joined today by our guest, John Scarborough, who's a PhD and president of Litigation Analytics, Inc. Dr. Scarborough has over 25 years experience analyzing economic loss in matters of personal injury and wrongful death, and he's one of the few human capital economists testifying in court today. Dr. Scarborough is the original architect of all expert system used by litigation analytics over the past 20 years. He's a frequent speaker to insurance companies and law firms, and is also the only structured settlement broker in the United States with a PhD in economics. And uh, lo and behold, he's a structured settlement broker with Ringler Associates, which is awfully good for us. Welcome to uh, Ringler Radio, John. Thank you, Larry. Well, you're the president of Litigation Analytics, Inc., as well as being a structure broker with Ringler. Uh, Tell our audience exactly what it is you do. Uh, With Litigation Analytics, um, a company that I founded in the early 1980s, we have a number of PhDs, um, all labor economists, um, located in Connecticut, New York, and we just opened a Dallas office. Um, and we get involved in cases just like you do. It's just that we look at the economic damages in the case. Interesting. And I know you've been very helpful to a lot of the folks in the structured settlement arena by helping to analyze some of those damages for us. Yeah, it works really well between, uh, between us and other Ringler brokers. Well, there's a good synergy there. Well, let's start off the show by talking a little bit about what you call economics in the courtroom, uh, or uh, as you call it, forensic economics, which is the term for that, that Define it and tell us a little bit about why it's an important distinction. Um, It's a very important distinction, Larry. Uh, Forensic economics, like forensic, um, fill in the blank anything, is the application of a science, for example, to address questions of the court. Much like forensic medicine would be the application of the literature and science of medicine um, to questions that uh, are are important in um, personal injury cases. Economics is the same way. Uh, the economics discipline exists outside of a courtroom, and from time to time, the expertise of economists are required in a courtroom to address matters of the court. The problem that seems to have occurred is that, unlike other scientific disciplines, in, the, in this case in the social sciences, the lawyers and judges have learned their economics in a courtroom. So you find a term called forensic economics that is, in, in contrast to forensic medicine, has become almost a discipline in and of itself in most people's views. And that really doesn't make a lot of sense, because uh, if you think about it for two seconds, you realize that a science cannot exist solely in a courtroom. 
Well, give us an example of uh, something else so our audience can can gain uh, a little insight into that. Use something other than economics and talk about how it would differ from a courtroom. Uh, uh, good. Imagine uh, uh, forensic cardiology. You have a cardiologist who testifies in a medical malpractice action. That cardiologist would be expected to bring the expertise um, that exists, say, in a hospital. Um, a cardiologist in a hospital would rely on certain medical principles and certain um, uh, standards of care. In a courtroom, you would expect the same thing. You wouldn't expect a cardiologist to be testifying and say, well, I'm a forensic cardiologist. And in forensic cardiology, the heart is shaped like a baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, that would make no sense. And yet you see that in forensic economics. It's, it's as if, well, no, in a courtroom, we do it this way. Outside of a courtroom, here's the way it's done, but inside of a courtroom, um, things are quite different. And, and, and they aren't. Interesting. Well, you, you asked the question, uh, I've seen it in some of your work, can the relevant scientific community be forensic economists? And what, 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 how do you answer that question? Well, I mean, if you if you can't see, uh, or if you can't see that a science can exist uh, or cannot exist only in a courtroom, you can look at, for example, in the Kumho Tire decision. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be a lawyer because <laughs> I certainly am not, but I can read. And um, and in that decision, the U.S. Supreme Court was interpreting the Daubert decision. And they referred to the Daubert decision as assuring that an expert will exercise the same level of rigor in a courtroom as the expert would perform in their relevant scientific field. Uh, Clearly, the court had in mind a scientific field that exists out of the courtroom. Otherwise, that sentence would make no sense. A court wouldn't say exercise in the courtroom the same level of expertise or rigor that you apply uh, in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. So clearly, they're different. Um, judges and lawyers are not those who can adequately vet a science in a courtroom. So clearly, the, uh, uh, the expertise you bring in has to be vetted by your peers for use outside of a courtroom. Well, there's no question that most judges and lawyers shy away from economics. They shy away from the numbers. Uh, they rely on the experts. And it's easy, I guess, for them to, to make, have those misconceptions when they, when they sit there on the bench or when they're listening to the people in the courtroom. You have a list, uh, kind of a top 10 list of forensic economic myths. Uh, give us a, a little overview about what are the misconceptions out there. Well, you just referred to one. Uh, judges don't like to listen to the numbers. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Larry, that economics has nothing whatsoever to do with numbers. Mm-hmm. If you think about when you took economics in college, uh, there were no numbers. Uh, you're talking about concepts. You're talking about uh, explaining the world that jurors live in. I missed a lot of classes. In, uh, well, then, <laughs> then maybe the numbers were just low grades. <laughs> it may be. <laughs> so we, we refer to the top 10 myths of uh, forensic economics as being kind of the rules of thumb that those claiming to be forensic economists and, and unfortunately allowed to testify in most cases use. The rules of thumb are those such that you need no training in economics uh, to make an assumption about a person's earnings, that earnings will grow at X percent per year. My kids could do that. You know? mm-hmm. um, it doesn't take any more than a calculator to be able to do that. Well, if that's all it was, what are the thousands of articles written about um, the economics of earnings or the many books devoted to that or the Nobel Prizes awarded for work in that area. What are they talking about if somebody who simply um, walks into a courtroom and declares themselves an expert can do it? 
Well, what about the concept, I think I've heard you say this, that even a caveman can be a forensic economist. Oh, yeah, this is kind of funny. <laughs> um, I was asked to give a presentation uh, a few months ago, and I had to submit my slides because the company was going to have a lot of non-employee uh, attendees. And they let me know that, uh, uh, that one of the slides was not politically correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a cartoonist in London do our Christmas cards each year, or our holiday cards. Right. And, um, and this particular one showed a Santa Claus outside of a cave with a caveman asleep. And Santa Claus was delivering a book, the title of which was How to Be a Forensic Economist. <laughs> and the caption was, I think even a caveman can do this. So I thought that the... I think Geico picked up on that. I'd say, <laughs> well, <laughs> hear me out. Uh, um, I thought that maybe the politically incorrect was... Uh, um, the Santa Claus. No, um, I think it was that you can't make fun of cavemen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I stepped on your line. I'm sorry about that. One of the things that's important to understand, uh, especially for people involved in cases that go to court, and we see it all the time, is this, where the economist presents a report about rate, the rate of earnings growth in terms of either lost income or future income that's going to be projected out. And they have this constant rate of earnings growth. You, you like to talk about that you use a different phrase, how things would have been. Uh, let's talk about that a little, this constant earnings growth and how things would have been and, and why there's some misconceptions about how that, uh, how that uh, should enter into the discussion. Well, I think the quote-unquote forensic economists that you see um, and, and we both address the same question, which is what would things have been? What would the person have earned absent this right. uh, allegation? The question comes in, well, how do you address that? Um, the statutes, the courts, uh, precedent will tell you what is to be addressed, such as earnings. Um, but economics tells you how to address that. So it's not so much that we, we differ um, with what typically goes on in a courtroom in terms of what should be addressed, but simply um, uh, how do you do that. And since we're talking about earnings and contrasting real economics with a simple assumption that earnings grow at a constant rate, it's been known for over 100 years that earnings grow at a declining rate as you get older. Uh, young people, you look at data and you see that, oh gosh, uh, young people, their earnings grow much faster than they do for older people. And people with more education, their earnings grow much faster than people with less education. So the earnings growth depends on your age, which changes every year, and your level of education, which typically does not change every year. So it's much, uh, much more complicated than just a simple assumption. Well, one thing we see constantly is uh, where the, the person bagging groceries at the store is projected to have been the manager in a certain oh, number sure. of years. You know, yes. So all, that, all right. that enters into the picture and uh, complicates the process. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and we'll be back in a minute with a little bit more with Dr. John Scarborough. This is Ringler Radio. From Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years, and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. This is Ringler Radio, 
Celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and I'm glad you joined us again today. We've been talking to John Scarborough, PhD and president of Litigation Analytics, Inc., and we're talking about the interesting concept of forensic economics. John, let me ask you this question. The whole concept of life care plans, and I know there's a lot of numbers that show up in life care plans and projections out there, and people, you know, really, they base the value of the case on these life care plan numbers. They become uh, quite, quite controversial. What are these life care? Where did they come from? It's, uh, again, a product of the courtroom. It's, uh, we've been unable to find any application of, of quote-unquote life care plans outside of a courtroom where people don't seem to be interested in paying money to find out what their medical needs are or their kids' medical needs are in 30 or 40 years. Unless they're in a court case. Yeah, and in a court <laughs> case, then it becomes relevant. Um, the life care planner identifies uh, items which, in his or her opinion, uh, are going to be required by this person. Um, even that's a problem because what, what does the word required mean? Does it mean if they don't get it, they'll die? Does it mean if they don't replace their wheelchair every seven years that uh, something bad is going to happen? What are items that are not in the life care plan that might be helpful? Uh, what's the least important item in the life care plan? Um, there's, there's no decision process that goes on other than, the, other than the person's opinion. So what can an economist do looking at a life care plan? Well, there are a couple of things. One is we have a, in economics, there's a vast literature on um, cost of care, on health economics. Um, when economists talk about cost of something, they are not typically looking at the inputs to that something. Uh, if it's care, you're interested in the cost of care. Not, it'd be like pricing the individual parts of a car in order to come up with the value of a car. No, yeah, there's a market for cars. You look at the price of a car. And it's the same way, the same way with, um, uh, with healthcare. The, um, one of the things that we tell lawyers before uh, they go in and make their opening statements is to try to get the jury to, uh, to hear that they will be listening to testimony about two things. One is healthcare cost, and the other is healthcare prices. A life care plan lays out uh, the quantities of goods and services and when they're going to be needed. The only thing then that the quote-unquote forensic economist does is take the prices and escalate them. Cost is price times quantity. It's like revenue for General Motors. Revenue for General Motors can go up if they just sell more cars. They don't have to raise their price. Healthcare costs in this country have risen dramatically, not because of prices, but because we're buying more health care. The reason that it's increasing in the percentage of GNP devoted to healthcare isn't that the price of healthcare goods and services are going up, but rather the quantity we're purchasing is. So the jury comes in with the idea that costs are going through the roof, can't afford health insurance, all these things that have to do with price times quantities. But all we're interested in with a life care plan is prices. Quantities are fixed. So in, in essence, in a life care plan, even though the rehab uh, might cost $100 per session, the fact that they have it every week in the life care plan raises the price substantially. Well, and it doesn't change. Right. Where the cost 
of health care. It would be as if, well, this year they, they need seven days, uh, I'm sorry, they need seven hours a week of, of therapy. Next year, they'll need 14 hours per week of therapy and the next 21 hours a week per therapy. That would be what's going on in healthcare costs. So what happens is people think in terms of cost and it causes a, a, an assumption about, well, I'm going to assume prices rise at 3%, 4% to sound conservative. It's not. It is if you're talking about cost, but cost is price times quantity. Quantities are fixed in a life care plan. Well, we, like, we always like real-life cases to kind of bring it all to, together for us. Uh, why don't you share with us how forensic economics applies to someone who's really suffering from a personal injury, and how, do that, how does that work in a real-life Well, scale? I use the term forensic economics. So if we mean by that what is seen in a courtroom, what happens is the forensic economist takes the life care plan prices and makes some assumption about growth where um, if that's the task, then the price increases are quite different um, from what we typically see. It, it is not appropriate to take a medical CPI and apply that to items in a life care plan because most of the items in a life care plan are not in the medical CPI. Home health care is a great example. It, it's in the producer price index. And as a final comment, the, um, the rate of increase in home health care by agencies who provide that service when they're providing home health attendants and skilled nursing care in the home. Over the 12 years that that index has existed, the average price increase is 1.9% per year, which is about a full point below inflation. And about four points below what they say it's going to be on the life care plan. Good That's point. interesting. Well, we've, uh, we've had a very good discussion about this. I think our audience is going to learn some things about this. And I, I want to tell everyone that in the next segment, which is going to be coming up shortly, we're actually going to explore the life care plan in much greater detail and, and how it affects uh, the value of cases. Well, I want to thank you, John, for uh, coming on today. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Uh, they can go to the Ringler website or they can go to the litigation analytics uh, website, litigationanalytics.com. Super. Well, in case you're a first-time listener, you should know that every Ringler radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from legaltalknetwork.com, or you can even... Uh, Go into iTunes and download it onto your iPod. It's really kind of fun. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, now go out and have a great day. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.